0: If you would stand with me and we'll read the scripture this morning. We're going to read uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, And I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. So that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. engaged in the same conflict that you saw, I had and now hear that I still have. May be seated.
1: Before we jump in here to look at verses 27 through 30 this morning, of chapter 1, I'm going to ask if you would to join me. And let's go to the Lord and take this time to him this morning. Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that you would see to it that your word remains in us. Make it readily available in those moments that we need it. Jesus warned us in the scriptures, told us very clearly That we will have tribulations in this world. We look around us and we see challenges and we see difficulties abound. Lord, we pray for grace to handle these hard times well. We confess before you, Lord, that we don't always handle the hard times as we should. We lose our patience, we abandon what we know to be true. And opt for our best. We exhibit anger instead of self-control. We manifest worldly principles instead of godly wisdom. We pattern ourselves according to our own best thinking instead of taking on the mind of Christ. So Lord, we ask that you would teach us your ways. You are the door for the sheep. We are deemed in the Bible the sheep of your pasture. So we pray that you would grant us right now to have ears to hear what you're saying through your holy word. We ask that you would lead us, Lord. And as your sheep, may we eagerly and faithfully follow you and follow your voice in these days ahead. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you more than likely have seen signs in a restaurant, perhaps posted outside a restaurant, that you've gone into something to the effect of uh, no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? Uh, I, I, was, I was drawn to thinking about, uh, you know, the, the, the game of golf has a certain etiquette to it, which I highly appreciate in our day and age that we live in. And one of the things about the game of golf is you can't just go walking onto the golf course, on many golf courses that is, uh, with a tank top or cut off shorts, uh, flip flops. Uh, There's a certain dress code or requirement if you're going to go play the game of golf on a particular golf course. There are certain standards You can't just pick up the phone and call someone at your local bank to gain access to your account. They're going to ask you more than likely if they are a good bank, a quality bank. They're going to ask you probably a series of questions. A password, a birth date, a social security number, a security question. To which you must have the answer. You see, the bank has certain security standards in place to make sure that you are who you say you are. Requirements that are in place to access your account. These standards and requirements. Did you know that the Lord, in His Word, establishes a few requirements ...of his own. We might be more familiar... ...with the word commandment... ...as opposed to requirement. When when I say... ...the Lord's commandments... ...we probably are quick to think of ten... ...of his commandments. You shall not... ...have any other gods before me. You shall not... ...bow down to any other gods... ...or idols... heaven above and earth... ...below... You shall not misuse my name. And then in the positive, it's keep the Sabbath. In the positive, it's honor your father and mother. Then it's you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And lastly... You shall not covet. See, God's got his own set of uh, of requirements and standards. The Bible says that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. So what's the requirement of entering into his kingdom? You must be what? Born again. A little bit later in that same John 3, whoever believes in Jesus, John 3.16 says, shall not perish but have everlasting life. You don't want to perish? He's made it very clear, he set it forth very plainly in the scripture. That God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever, greatest invitation out there, whoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life isn't it interesting that so many standards and requirements abound in our society today but when jesus the savior of the world the co-creator of all things when he delivers his requirements for living this life many think very little of them they tend to push his requirements off to the side they they switch out they do a switcheroo they switch out his commandments and they substitute their own these are ones that feel a whole lot better these are ones that hurt less these are ones that bring a whole lot more pleasure and entertainment to the flesh when we come to the end of philippians chapter 1 we we bump up against god's standards His requirements. Paul is exhorting the Philippian church in this text to adhere to certain requirements. This is really the title. This, this is, I believe Paul's saying in this text, this is required living as a child of God. Get this, hold on to this. The big idea here citizens of heaven. Conduct themselves according to gospel requirements. Not options, but these are the requirements, these are the standards that God Himself is setting forth. Paul is sounding an alarm to the church live as citizens of heaven here on earth. Live as citizens of heaven here on earth. And so really the central question from these few verses here at the end of chapter 1 I'd like to deal with this morning is what does the gospel require of us? What's it demand of us? What are the operating standards and procedures, if you will, by which a child of God is to live? That's where we're going for this morning. So, required living for the child of God. It includes. Here's the first thing. It includes worthy conduct. Worthy conduct. Look at verse 27 with me in the Bible. Only let your conduct be worthy of Of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Required living for the child of God includes worthy conduct. Now, let me cue you in on three ideas that are being presented in this verse alone. Much of the weight of this passage in 27 through 30 rests right here in 27. There's a whole lot to glean in verse 27. The church at Philippi, whom is, this is the direct audience to whom Paul is writing while he's in prison. They're being exhorted to live out what the Bible says ought to be true of every local assembly. Three primary ideas are presented in this verse. If required living for the child of God includes worthy conduct. What then makes up this worthy conduct? Well, there are three parts to this. I'm going to go ahead and and, and put the first one up here. Sharing together. Okay? Sharing together. This This is significant. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Required living for the child of God is carried out in the context of the church. Doing life together. Ephesians 4 refers to this as being connected. One to another as we are connected to Christ who is our head. Right? Connectivity to other parts of the body. Required living as a child of God includes worthy conduct which is sharing life Together. It's a participation together and this sharing is described and has been described already in Philippians chapter 1 verse 5 as participation or a fellowship in the gospel chapter 1 verse 5. This kind of sharing together is also described in verse 12 and verse 25 where he talks about the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 25 that same word is used progress same original word the advancement of the gospel the sharing together happens even when we think about uh, what he says in 117 about he's appointed for the defense of the gospel these are things that we do together as a child of god and this sentence in the original language is front loaded with intentionality a lot of times in the original language uh, the writer will move certain words to the front of the sentence for particular emphasis. And in the original, this verse 27 actually says, only worthily, only worthily. Those are the first two words of the sentence. Only worthily of the gospel of Christ, let your conduct be. Now the word only here speaks of above all or at all costs. It's the same word that we see uh, back in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul is essentially uh, rebuking uh, the church here in Galatia. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, This only I want to learn from you. This, he says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I only want to know this, he says, from you. I I really would like to have an answer to this. Remember that Paul, in the previous passage in Philippians that we covered last week, he's prepared himself to move forward remaining in the flesh, right? Why? Because he says it's more needful for the church... That I remain in order that he might continue with them, Lord willing, be with them for their progress and joy of faith. Paul begins verse 27 with only. So, so it's always saying now at all costs, above all things, there's something you all need to be about. You all need to know what is required of you by God. It's not enough that I remain with you all. You ...are also in Christ. And as such, you are under obligation... ...to conduct yourself as one of His children. The word worthily. It's having the weight of another thing. Weighing as much as another thing. Uh, Of like value. Something that's worth as much... West in his commentary says that the saints are to see to it that their manner of life, their conduct, weighs as much as the gospel they profess to believe. Or their words will not have weight. Think about this. That which gives weight to the Christian's words is the fact that his manner of life corresponds with the gospel he preaches. If you, this morning, church, were to put on the scales, your conduct in Christ, would it weigh as much as the gospel you profess to believe? Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy. To walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Only worthily of the gospel let your conduct be, says Paul here. The worthy conduct is connected to citizenship. Thus the big idea uses citizens of heaven. For those in Philippi, Roman citizenship was held in high regard. You read Acts 16, Paul's account in Philippi, and you get a sense of the weight of Roman citizenship in Philippi. As a Roman colony, Philippi was a miniature Rome in terms of it being run and governed by the principles that you would find in Rome. It was no small thing in Philippi to be considered a Roman citizen. And the the Philippians would have related very well to what Paul is saying here, this idea of living as a citizen of Rome. You see, because in Philippi, Citizenship meant something. Boy, I just love when the Bible connects and corresponds to where we are in our society and culture today. Citizenship today doesn't seem to mean a whole lot to a growing number of people. For sure, it's cherished by some. To others, it it represents a land that they fought for to secure the freedoms we're privileged to enjoy today. And we're grateful for those who have fought on behalf of our country. But there are some who are blinded to what it is to be a citizen of these United States of America. A citizen of this country upholds certain values and standards respects his country, his leadership. He may not always agree with everything leadership does, but as a citizen of this country, he upholds the standards and principles embraced by the country he lives in. I'm spending time talking about citizenship because the text brings this forward, both here in 27 Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. But also in chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to specifically mention our citizenship is where, church? In heaven. It's in heaven. So the word that's used here for conduct, politiuste, poly, you probably get the first part of that word, has the prefix polis, which is where we get our word city, Right? To conduct oneself as a citizen. To discharge your obligations as citizens. Uh, Some of the translations for this word conduct have conversation. If you maybe have a King James, that conversation is the word. Or maybe manner of life or, or behavior. The word referred to the public duties that were required upon a man as a member of a body. So Paul takes a word that resonates... With those in Philippi, conduct as citizens. And he applies that to their responsibility at a much higher level, which is conduct as heavenly citizens. See that you are found, Paul says, operating according to the requirements of God's kingdom. In your affairs, see that you operate according to his truth, hold fast to his word in obedience to his commandments, Let your conduct weigh as much as the gospel that you profess, church. And the church is called to share together in this. As citizens of heaven, we share together in this high calling. We operate under the same commanding officer. We are on the same mission together while we're here. We've been given the same objectives We're labeled sojourners and pilgrims, all of us in Christ because our stay here is short, our homeland is heaven and the prize for which we strive is Jesus, amen? We share these things in common. We're called to conduct ourselves, all of us in Christ, called to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. Only worthily, ...of the gospel of Christ. As a matter of first importance... ...we approach this. Now note also, look at the text. He says, so that whether I come and see you... ...or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Paul's desire, this is so important for us to get. Paul's desire... ...is that he might come to them... ...and help them make progress... ...advance in the faith... But whether or not he's present to check in on them, listen to this, Paul is exhorting the church to conduct themselves as heavenly citizens, as gospel citizens. Now I mention this for two reasons. One, there's no one to blame your conduct on when you've been given the requirements of God's word for living as a child of God. Paul hopes to come alongside and minister to the church for their edification and growth in the Lord. But ultimately, the church is responsible to live according to God's standards. No one else can do for you what the Lord requires of you. No one else can live as a citizen of heaven for you. You must do it. And secondly... Living as a citizen of God's kingdom is not contingent upon someone else watching you. Paul says, whether I come or not, this is what's required of you. He instructs the servants working for their masters. You might recall the passage in Ephesians 6. This is the principle I think he's getting at here in in Philippians it's bond servants, be obedient. This is Ephesians 6, 5 and 6. Be obedient in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service. You know what, surely you know what eye service is, don't you? Eye service. Some of us uh, children perhaps have mastered eye service. We will obey as long as dad and mom are watching. But if perhaps dad and mom's eyes aren't on me, Hmm. Are we about obedience during those moments of eye service, as Paul says, men pleasers? Or are we bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord, not to men? In other words, what Paul is saying here is that we're to live as citizens of God's kingdom, conducting ourselves according to the requirements and standards of the gospel because of the Lord, not because anyone is watching you. Are you only conducting yourself as a citizen when other men are watching? That's a good question to ask. Is heavenly citizenship Only a performance. We do these things because we're bondservants of Christ. We know that our reward comes from Him. Therefore, our motivation, we've talked about this already in Philippians 1, our motivation for what we do ought to be a driving, compelling love for the Lord. Worthy conduct for the child of God involves sharing together. But it also involves this. Standing together. Standing together. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. What is it that Paul hopes to hear about their affairs? He's hoping to hear that they stand fast in one spirit. The idea of standing fast is to stand firm, to hold one's ground. Conduct yourself as a citizen of God's kingdom, standing fast in one spirit. The church is called to do this together. Now, embedded here in the text is an an assumption. Here's the assumption, that the church is called to hold her ground amidst opposition. The word here has in mind the determination of a soldier who does not budge one inch from his post. He stands fast. Worthy conduct for a heavenly citizen is to stand firm against the lies of the evil one, the lures of the world. The desires of the flesh, those things that 1 John 2, 15 speak of. Paul writes these words in Ephesians 6. This is in the context of the spiritual battle. He says to take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day, in that evil day. And having done all to what? To stand. And he begins that very next sentence, stand therefore. Put on this armor that God's given to you. Stand together in one spirit. Unity is called for here. Perhaps this is the first uh, glimmer of concern that he may have for the church at Philippi. He'll address this a little bit more as the letter progresses. But unity is what's called for here. When you you think about this and you ask the question, what what happens when followers of Jesus walk together? Unity in the faith. Sends a message to a watching world, doesn't it? I mean, we, we sing that song sometimes. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by what we share in together, by what we stand firm against together, by what we stand for together. Standing fast in one Spirit might mean that you forfeit some of your desires some of your wants for the sake of the brethren isn't this exactly what Paul walked us through last week right What, what was it that tipped the scales of his decision making remember of whether to live or to die whether to depart or remain his desire was to depart and be with Christ which he said is far better but He understood that to remain was more needful for the church. He's exhorting the church to adhere to this same spirit. Lay down your lives for the brethren. 1 John 3.16 Sharing together, standing together, both represent the worthy conduct that's required of heavenly citizens. There's one more to add here in verse 27. You probably have filled it in already. Striving together. Striving together. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word striving has in mind to contend or to struggle along with someone. It implies a cooperation it refers to an athletic contest in which a group of athletes cooperates as a team against another team working in perfect coordination against a common objective, an opposition. Paul is advocating how a citizen of the kingdom operates. And later on it becomes apparent that there were these two women, Eodia and Sintiki. They're not of one mind, it seems. Chapter 4, verse 2. And he addresses this. And and I believe right here in chapter 1, this is a a precursor call to the church to share together, stand together, strive together with one mind. And he's going to elaborate on this one mind as we move on into chapter 2 and call us to the pattern of our Lord and Savior. He's going to call us to pattern our conduct, our thinking, after Christ himself. If we were to consider for a moment this concept, this idea of striving together, I was thinking of, as it pertains to an athletic contest, which is the, the gist of the word, I was thinking of uh, canoeing and, and thinking about how, or kayaking, you know, what Both of those are sports, and you have sometimes maybe up to four, five, six people or more in one of those canoes. And when the gun goes off to start the race, the individual participants in each canoe, they start what? Rowing. Now consider for just a moment what happens when six rowers are rowing haphazardly. What happens to that canoe when participants row only when they feel like it? Well, what happens to the canoe when participants get distracted by birds flying around and they stop rowing altogether? Well, the canoe may go in circles. It might be a lot of rowing, vigorous rowing. Might be a lot of it happening, but nothing productive toward the finish line. The canoe might, might just wander. It might go really fast, but it might go really fast in the wrong direction. The canoe might remain stagnant if enough of the rowers are distracted by other things. If rowing stops, the canoe may continue on for just a while, but eventually it will come to a halt. No progress then will be made toward the finish line. What is it according to the text that we're striving for, church? The text says the faith of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, the core of which is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We strive together to see the gospel of Jesus Christ move forward. We contend, listen, we contend and struggle together for the faith of the gospel. Caution. We don't contend and struggle against one another. Our contention and struggle is not against one another. Required living for a child of God includes worthy conduct. Conduct that is fitting for a heavenly citizen sharing together in recognition of our heavenly citizenship, standing together against the forces of darkness, against that which opposes Christ and his truth, striving with one mind for the faith of the gospel. There's a whole lot there in verse 27. But what else is there that's required living for the child of God? Let's look at verse 28. Not only worthy conduct, But a winsome response. Worthy conduct in a winsome response. That's verse 28. Look at, the, look at the verse. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God. You see, required living includes both a worthy conduct and a winsome response. I want you to notice where the text goes from the end of 27 to the beginning of 28. From sharing together, standing together, and striving together to responding together. This is also something we do together. With a like-minded voice. It's difficult, friends, to Worthily conduct yourself according to the gospel of Christ when you respond in fear. Paul's saying here, "Do, do not fear. He's saying, don't panic. He's saying, don't be like a bunch of scared horses. That's the metaphor that's here in the word. How many of you ever seen some horses get startled? Anybody ever seen horses get startled? You know what that looks like, you know what that sounds like? That's the metaphor that's being used here. Don't be terrified. Don't be terrified in any way. These adversaries that are described in the text are those who are entrenched in their opposition against you. They're entrenched. You know, When you think about someone being entrenched, they're hunkered down. They're, they're really not going anywhere anytime soon. They're entrenched in their opposition against you. And truly, the opposition against you is not so much against you as it is against the things of Christ, isn't it? The adversaries that are found here in verse 28... This word oftentimes in the Bible designates a non-Christian opposition. We're not talking about opposition from within. We're talking here in the text, opposition from outside. The adversaries do their work on behalf of the capital A adversary, the devil, whose work it is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He is the father of lies and he excels at deception. How do you respond amidst opposition? By the way, this is not an option either. We're talking about requirements of a child of God for living. Worthy conduct. Winsome response is required as well. Having a winsome response is to handle yourself with meekness and gentleness and to exhibit self-control. Listen, being winsome also has a backbone. It's not fearful of standing firm upon the truth, standing up to falsehood or activity that counters the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's at stake here in verse 28, church? Does it really matter how we respond to our adversaries? Yes, it does. I believe Paul would tell us, the Lord would tell us here in his word, absolutely, yes, it does matter how we respond. You see, our testimony is at stake, isn't it? The Lord's name, more importantly, is at stake. Our testimony of his name is at stake. The weight of our conduct is at stake. You see, you can verbalize your belief in Christ all you want, but if your response is to run from the adversary, or worse yet, compromise under the demands of the adversary, we have effectively lost our witness and testimony to those who are watching. A winsome response in the midst of opposition, the text says, serves as proof. Or the word here has in mind an evident token. Token. Proof of their perdition or their destruction. Wow, that's that's pretty deep. It's deep. When the church of Jesus Christ shares together in her heavenly citizenship, stands together in one spirit against opposition and for the gospel, and strives together with one mind, her witness does one of two things. One, it attracts and draws men together. To Christ himself. Or two. It does this as well. It identifies clearly those who belong to Christ. You see a winsome response in the midst of opposition. Is proof not only of where you stand as a citizen of God's kingdom. But it shines light back on the adversary. Illuminating with great clarity now. Their own destruction. You see, when a winsome, courageous response is lived out, the token of evidence has been submitted. Acts 4, verse 13 is an example. When the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, what explains why someone would respond the way that Peter and John did? It's in the winsome response, which gets coupled with their worthy conduct. This is a token of evidence for the opposition that Peter and John had been soaking in a high dosage of Jesus. They saw it. They witnessed it. What explains why someone would respond the way Daniel does before being thrown into a den of lions what explains the response from these three young men Shadrach Meshach and Abednego before being thrown into a fiery furnace these men were all in with God to live was to live for God to die meant being with God Sounds a lot like what Paul just said last week. (laughs) Their response was winsome. It was courageous. It was bold. It was their duty as a citizen of God's kingdom to respond this way. And yet, the response that's called for in the text is not one solely made out of duty. We need to understand this. We respond this way ultimately compelled by our love for Jesus don't we? The one who willingly laid down his life for us at the cross. The winsome response affects those who oppose, but I don't want you to miss how verse 28 ends. The winsome response is proof for ourselves of our salvation. And that from God. So the response that you give in the midst of an adversary opposed to Christ is proof. Not only to them of their destruction, their eternal separation from God. But to you it serves as a confirmation of your own salvation that you are in Christ Jesus. Unless you think yourself higher than you ought to think. The text inserts this wonderful line at the end of 28. And that from God. You see, responding in winsome, courageous fashion shines light on God's saving work in you. It reminds you that this is His work. He started it in you. Hopefully you remember these words we've already covered in Philippians 1. This work He began in chapter 1, verse 6. It's a work He promises to complete at the day of Jesus. Perhaps there's an element here in our winsome response to opposition And we find, have you ever been in this situation where you really find no explanation at all as to why you operated a certain way? All that can be concluded in the moment is that only God, I don't know. I don't know how I said what I said. I don't know how I did what I did. I just know that it happened this way. God did this in and through me. And when many would cower and run away or give way and compromise, the citizen of heaven conducts himself worthily and responds winsomely, boldly, courageously, no matter the cost to himself, for he understands that it's not about himself. And that's what makes his response so startling to the opposition when he responds unlike that of the world, out of concern for self, out of concern for comfort, out of concern for security, when he responds winsomely for the sake of Christ alone, that's an attention getter. That's the difference maker. Sinclair Ferguson says, no matter how gracious we are in our lifestyle, opposition will come just as it came to Jesus, the question is not whether we will experience it or not, but how we respond to it. How are we going to respond to it? Citizens of heaven joyfully conduct themselves according to gospel requirements. Required living for the child of God includes worthy conduct It includes a winsome response. But look finally with me at the last two verses of the text. Required living for the child of God also includes wholehearted understanding. Wholehearted understanding. For to you it has been granted. On behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Perhaps we've understood the gospel only in terms of what it is to believe in Jesus. That believing and receiving are crucial to gospel understanding is evident from John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It's evident. It's there. But the Bible is also clear that believing is something even the demons do. James addresses this, right? Even the demons believe. When we look at what God has called us to as citizens in his kingdom, it involves believing, but it doesn't end with believing. Behavior goes along with belief, doesn't it? Behavior. The gospel hinges upon those truths of first importance. Paul says in Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's really the core and the crux of the gospel message, isn't it? Paul concludes this chapter in Philippians 1. But he's going to continue with some of these same threads we've been talking about as he goes into chapter 2. He exhorts the church here to grasp an understanding of their heavenly citizenship. A component, I believe, is largely absent in the church today, especially here in these United States. And that's required living as a child of God includes believing, but it also includes suffering. Suffering. I know it's not a popular subject to talk about. It may seem like a big downer. He's talking about suffering. I want you to notice something. That verse 29, one writer had to pin this, and I thought this this was right on point. Verse 29 comes forth really as a special invitation. For to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ. The word granted has in mind to give graciously. Uh, The core of that word, granted, has the word that we oftentimes use in the scripture, grace, charis. Grace comes out of this word. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. On behalf of, that word means not only for the sake of, but can also mean in the place of. Not only for the sake of, but can also mean in the place of. And it's right here where I started looking and, and, and there was a verse and Paul wrote to the church in Colossae in chapter 1 verse 24 that always sort of puzzled me. And, and reading through Philippians here at the end of Philippians, it, was, it, it kind of brought these two together. And In chapter 1 verse 24, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. That is so hard for us to comprehend. Rejoicing in my sufferings for someone else? And he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. For the sake of his body, which is the church. West writes in his commentary here, he says, our Lord's sufferings For righteousness' sake, which he endured as a result of human antagonism against himself, ended with his death on a cross. He has left the church with the message of salvation, the preaching of which draws the antagonism of the world. Thus, as the saints suffer for righteousness' sake, they substitute for their absent Lord, not only in the task of preaching the message he's given them, but also in the suffering for his sake and in his stead. Sinclair Ferguson says that suffering is but one of God's instruments to change us. And listen, it's required of us to live this way. That's the intent behind this third point. To embrace a wholehearted understanding of what God expects of His children. We tend to be okay with the believe part. The believe on the Lord Jesus. We seem to be okay with that one. We like that one. It sounds good. And yeah, yeah, sign me up. But to suffer for His sake, that doesn't sound all that appealing to us. And yet that one is as needful as the other. In fact, they work in tandem. Wonderful passage in Romans chapter 8, 17 and 18. Paul's talking about and if we're if we're children of God, then we're heirs, right? Remember that passage? And and if heirs of God, then joint heirs with Christ. And we oftentimes stop reading right there. If we continue reading the verse in verse 17, it says Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Verse 18 then says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Do you see the weight of things that Paul's putting on the scale? And he's saying, He's saying that suffering here in this present. Doesn't even, doesn't even come close to weighing what it's going to be like when His glory is revealed. It seems like the Bible here is telling us from this Romans passage that the pathway to glory is through suffering. That if we are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, it will show itself through the pathway of suffering with Him It seems like Paul is is weighing his present suffering and his glory that awaits him. And he says it's no contest. It's not even close. Elsewhere he refers to this suffering as light affliction. Which is but for a moment. He's able to see that his present suffering is working toward a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. For Paul then, it's about taking on God's perspective and setting aside his own perspective. Kent Hughes writes, he says, The fellowship of Christ's sufferings moves the believer beyond the role of beneficiary of Christ's death. You know, we receive the benefits, if you will, of what Christ did at the cross. And, and, And Hughes is saying that the fellowship of Christ's suffering, it moves us beyond just a beneficiary role to that of a sharer in his suffering. The suffering that comes to a Christian as a Christian, he says, is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather a proof that grace is at work in his or her life. Grace is at work. It's, it's the Acts 5.41 idea. When Remember when the apostles, they leave the council and they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing, friends? Because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Ferguson says, this is sort of a reminder too here for us, that if we are opposed for the sake of Christ, it's because we belong to him. Matthew 5 verse 11, "For are persecuted for his name's sake. The church at Philippi is being told they are in the midst of the same conflict. That's what verse 30 says. The same conflict as Paul. The same struggle. The word has in mind a Struggle. It's an athletic imagery, an agony, a struggle. And he's saying, the church here's got the same struggle, having the same conflict. One writer says, he says, recall that Paul's goal here, going back to verse 12 even, Paul's goal has been to make the church understand that his suffering and imprisonment are not a mistake, but part of God's larger plan for the advancement of the gospel. And in light of this, He is preparing them for what lies ahead. He's disclosing to them and to us here today that there is more to following Christ than believing. It has been graciously granted to you on behalf of Christ to suffer. We tend to associate grace with our coming to faith in Jesus Christ, right? The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith in other words our coming to Christ is granted to us do you see your salvation as a wonderful gift of God how about your suffering have you viewed suffering for Christ's sake, as a grace gift as well? Have you only seen suffering as something to be avoided, something to sidetrack at all costs? Hughes writes, he says, God's grace to us includes both salvation and suffering. If we imagine grace to be only pleasant benefits and blessings, then suffering is seen to be anything but grace. And listen, here's what happens. He says, many confused souls have walked away from God, from his church, and ultimately from his grace. It's true we may never spend time in prison for our faith in Jesus Christ. We may never experience the myriad of physical challenges that Paul himself went through for the sake of Jesus Christ and the advancement Of the gospel. The point here is not that our lives match blow for blow. What Paul experienced. Having a wholehearted understanding of what we've been graciously given. It's significant for Christ's sake. That we understand this. That we grasp this. So this required living for the child of God. uh, Avery can I have you come up here. Isaac come up here for just a moment. This required living as a child of God. Come on, paper, quick! You just see that everybody gets one of those. Thank you. It includes worthy conduct, sharing together, who we are in Christ, standing together in one spirit, striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. It includes a winsome response that we boldly respond in faith, trusting God to take care of the results. A winsome response serves as a token of perdition or destruction to those who are perishing. Salvation to those who are in Christ. Also includes a wholehearted understanding that we come to know the grace that's been given to us. That by grace we are saved and we come to believe and that by grace for the sake of Christ in His stead we also suffer. Everybody have? Can I have, is there an extra one there? If there's an extra one, I'll go ahead and take, take one. Many of you have probably received on different occasions an, an invitation. Perhaps to a wedding, party of some kind. When you receive an invitation, there's usually some kind of RSVP card inside. And the card is intended to oftentimes collect information as to whether you're coming or whether you're not coming, right? How many people are going to be there, etc. And checking a particular box on the card typically means that you're committing, whether to be present or not going to be able to make it. Well, there's two boxes or two lines here on this invitation that you have before you. There are many of you here today who have already checked in your heart the believe box. And perhaps this morning... In response to the text, it's time to check the suffer box as well. To be all in with Jesus, whatever comes in these days ahead. Some of you have yet to check the believe box in your own heart. I didn't want to pass this opportunity up this morning. You've yet to receive His grace and appropriate that into your living And if that's you this morning, I pray that you see your need to believe and receive Jesus into your life. Because apart from life of the Spirit operating in you, it's important that you understand. We're talking about required living as a child of God. You cannot, you cannot meet the standards and requirements that God has set forth in His Word. You cannot meet those. The flesh can't do that. But the Bible says that God sent his son Jesus down here to earth to live and to die so that you and me might be able to then keep the demands and requirements of the law. He provides everlasting life and he allows you to be joint heirs with him if indeed you suffer with him that you might be glorified together. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. There's a heavenly wedding in the works. How many of you know about that? You've been invited. Not by me, the Lord's invited you. You've been granted an invitation by the Lord. Typically on those cards that you get There's a date, RSVP date. Here's the RSVP RSVP date that the Lord gives. It's today. Today. Today is the day of your salvation. Don't delay in your response. Don't miss out on this. Make preparations now for that day to come. Make today the day of salvation. The day that you say yes to his amazing grace. It is amazing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for graciously gifting to us your son, Jesus. Lord, as we've heard this morning from your word, there's more to this living as a citizen of your kingdom than mere proclamation saying we believe. Paul is exhorting the church to move beyond believing or couple our believing with suffering. And he he even has put down here for us that that grace is involved in both of these things. In our belief, it's involved in our suffering. That both seemingly, as they're put forth in the scripture here this morning, are grace gifts to us. Lord, the one we seem to acknowledge quite quickly, the other we perhaps have not acknowledged at all. Or maybe for some of us, we've refused it entirely. The suffering. I pray, Father, that you would change our heart, change our mind in regard to these things. Lord, if there are some here today who have yet to believe in your name, my prayer for them is that you would transform them renew their mind, that they might say yes to Jesus and receive Jesus into their life, that they might have the Spirit of Christ operating in them, enabling them to work through, navigate through, give a winsome response to any suffering, any trial, any tribulation that might come their way in these days ahead. Help us not to shy away Not to turn from or to compromise your truth. But may we at all times as your church, may we go about our work for you as a citizen of your kingdom. May we do this work side by side, together, sharing, standing, striving, responding together in all things for the sake of Christ embracing the grace gift that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord. What a blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.